Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. All right, so uh, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's special guest is none other than Alberto Vela. Uh, He and I had a very fortuitous meeting at an elevator bank. Uh, We were both standing there waiting for the elevator. I remember this like it was yesterday. Um, And then the conversation down the elevator was, oh, what do you do? Oh, this is what I do. Oh, this is fantastic. And so that was, I think, the beginning, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So I am so happy to have you on today, Alberto, because I think that your, um, of course, your background, but then just all the cool stuff that you've had an opportunity to be a part of. Um, and just, just your energy is just infectious. I know you say that about me, but I, I, I think that's, I think we bring it out of each other. Um, that's, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm excited to have you on today. Welcome to full circle. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real honor. I, I'm actually flattered, you know, cause you know me, I never thought I'm that exciting, you know, um, Except in my nerdy way, right? In my nerdy zone, I'm really super excited. And uh, as you know, you know, at TBRE, it's kind of a different vibe with the brokers versus the technical types. Um, but no, it's, it's really fun. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm just, uh, I can't wait. I'm also flattered. Thank you yeah, no, of course. No, when I decided to do this podcast, you were on my list. I was like, I need to have Alberto because we have these little conversations at work and then in Ola and all of these things. So I feel like you're definitely somebody who um, has a great story to share. So uh, we're going to jump right in because uh, I know the first time we met, we started talking about East Los Angeles and what it was like to grow up in East Los Angeles and then how East Los Angeles has shifted in some ways and how it's still the same in other ways. Um, so can you tell me about what it was like to grow up in East Los Angeles? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm probably a couple of years older than you, darling. So I got to live through the 60s and 70s. And, uh, and, you know, even though I was born in the early 60s, you know, I remember the riots. I remember the, the protests. I remember the energy. Because a kid, you don't know what, what's going on. But there is a lot of energy in the air when there's a protest or a riot. And I, I come from a very modest family, um, so we would, uh, you know, pretty much go to the park every weekend. You know, my poor mother, who had eight children, all born in the '60s, that was the cheapest way to entertain them. You take them to the park and let them play, and then after a few hours, when they're all tired, you take them home, right? And uh, and so in our community back then, you know, there was a lot of things happening at the park. Again, you had people showing up for protesting at least once a month. You had other activities going on. And so I got to maybe kind of see without comprehending the, some of the social action that was occurring, you know, that was happening in the '60s. Uh, in the '70s, it was kind of more of a different vibe, in the, that it was, a, you know, for us it was economically even 
more difficult in the 70s and the 60s. I was one of those kids that, you know, my parents did have to get on Medicaid. They did have to take some welfare, uh, as we call it back then, food stamps or whatever. But, you know, boys got to eat and, you know, <laughs> food is food and, and we appreciate it. Um, but, you know, probably the, the, the biggest thing that's just radically changed between now and, 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 and what it was back then is our city was still segregated back then. Uh, it wasn't the type of segregation you may have seen in the South, per se. It was a little more subtle. So the Hispanics lived in the barrio, right? Or Colima in the Valley or East L.A. Um, you know, the African-American community was mostly South Central, you know. And then, you know, you had a Jewish population. You even had an Asian population. And uh, at the time, you don't think anything about it. It's your normal. Of course, that's how it works. But then as you get older, you say, hey, that was kind of different, you know. And... Um, and I happened, you know, when I got to middle school, I moved a whole mile and a half from where I was as an eight or nine-year-old and literally moved from one side of the tracks to the other. I, I grew up within a quarter mile of the, of the East L.A. train yards. And, uh, and so by moving over that little bit, you know, we were still considered East L.A., but there's a little tiny sliver community called City of Commerce. And... Um, it was only a mile and a half from World of Rights to Clay when I was a kid. And, and, uh, but that little city was, um, was on the borderline of LA Unified School District and Bell Gardens. And, and so as I got older, the community in Bell Gardens was also working class, albeit white. And so now I'm, you know, fifth, sixth grade, middle school age, and, uh, and there's a juxtaposition when you come from, a, you know, essentially the east side. And you're maybe wearing, you know, what the cholos would wear. So I wouldn't wear that because that could be dangerous. But I would wear a T-shirt and jeans. I would. And then, so as, as I went over to uh, to my middle school and high school, you're at that age. You know, you want to fit in, be cool, maybe ask a girl to a dance. Uh, but it was mostly white community. And so I'd wear my puka shells, maybe listen to Led Zeppelin or Rolling Stones, you know, and wear my OP shorts or whatever that was. And then you get home, like, oh, for God's sakes, I can't have that. I'm going to beat up those puka shells out. And so I got to see that transformation, you know, where it was changing, the community was changing, maybe moving. Now it's a lot more gentrified. Uh, it's not as violent. It was very, very, very violent. Um, um, you know, when I came of age, it was the early 80s, late 70s. Um, you know, there, there, was, there was a lot of, you know, it was a tough neighborhood. And, and so you kind of had to know your way around and... Uh, but overall, when I think about uh, where East L.A., it, it has gone through an arc where it's really starting to improve and gentrifying. If anything, you know, the communities are changing. You get to Royal Heights, for example. It's kind of that kind of hippish, hipster ones. You know, you, know, you can see Royal Heights being the new, like, Silver Lake kind of part. Um, I think change is good, especially since we're in real estate. Right. right? real estate. Uh, but it is changing the flavor of the community, and it's probably a good thing, you know. They're kind of, you know, kind of move everyone around, whether you're rich or poor, you know, doesn't make sense to try to warehouse people in one area. Just, just kind of move them around, give them opportunity, let them integrate. And I think that's what's going on in, in East L.A. now, starting to integrate where you have different people. It's not just all poor brown people. And you see it at South Central, too. It's not just all, you know, working class African-Americans. It's kind of a diverse community now. You know, you, you, you know, my brother, I told you my brother, Jesus, Jesus, right? who was a priest in South Central, uh, we saw that community change where, in addition to having a, a large African-American community, the 
ones that really went to church was kind of people that come from Africa, you know, a lot of Nigerians, for example, who were more Catholic, uh, being raised Catholic. Um, and then a lot of Hispanics, you know, and the Hispanics so badly wanted to buy a house. And, and as hard as it is to believe, it was South Central was even cheaper than East L.A. Yeah, I think we had a little less violence, but not much, you know, and, uh, and they would buy those houses. And you can see now that South Central's changing. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, uh, my brother, uh, his church was maybe a mile and a half from Nicholson Gardens, if you know your way around there, uh, you know, or Imperial Courts. That, that's a really tough place to be. And uh, now you see houses that are painted or they're trying to grow some plants. You still have all the gates and stuff. But it's starting to improve, and, and that brings me a lot of, uh, you know, makes me really optimistic. You know? Maybe not in my lifetime, but my kids' lifetime, my grandkids' lifetime, we'll be looking at a different. Yeah, no, totally. I um, know that when we've spoken about your mom, uh, you told me what a, I mean, today we would say what a badass she is, right? Uh, probably <laughs> back then it would be like, oh, yeah, she's kind of doing something else. Uh, but I mean, we talked about how she has been such a big influence on you and some of the lessons and the values that she's instilled in you and your siblings. So can we talk about your badass mom? Well, first of all, my mom is my hero. You know, you know, when I look up to the people in this world, it's really two. And it, it starts with my mom and my brother, Jesus. Um, and, you know, think about it. Here was a woman who came over to the U.S. on a sixth grade education. Um, she had eight children in 11 years, you know, all of them born in the 60s. Okay, one was born in 1970. Okay, with technically in the 60s, right? And, you know, essentially she was pregnant two-thirds of the 60s, you know, uh, raising, you know, seven, I have seven brothers and, uh, and, uh, and uh, one, one sister. And, of course, you know, being Hispanics, we did what our Hispanics did. My grandma moved in. My cousin moved in. The neighbor's kid moved in for a few years. So you can imagine, that's like 10 kids, grandma 11, mom and dad, that's 13. It was a very active household. Um, and I always felt that in order for my mom to keep everyone in control, she had to run a tight ship, a really tight ship. And so we made choices. You know, I had to make a choice. Who was I more fearful of, uh, the gangs or my mom? Like, uh, my mom. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, but lots of things could happen that I don't want to find out. And, and so my mom was a very high energetic uh, woman, very demanding. Um, she wore the pants in the house, you know. Uh, I mean, it, was, it wasn't my dad. It was my mom. And, and so as we got older, um, in the 80s, my, I just graduated or I just graduated high school when I was about to start university. She decided I wanted to go back to school. Okay, that's cool, Mom. So she went and she went and uh, got her uh, high school degree or GED. And it still took two or three years, even as a grown parent. Oh, how cute, right? Mom, Mom went to school, right? And she was like, oh, I'm going to go to college. Really? She went to college. She got a, a two-year degree and some certificates because she had kind of changed her mind on her next step. She wanted to start her own business. Uh, and I'll never forget this because she called us for dinner, you know, the big Hispanic families, you know, when a family meeting was called, that generally means that our, our you know, our mom or dad was going to solicit something from the kids, right? Or, and so, sure enough, she came in and said uh, she wanted to start her own business. And, 
And, and so my mom, whose name is Julieta Vela, uh, decided to chase her dream, and it was to open up a bookstore, a bookstore in East L.A. Like, okay, people read. Spanish bookstores, makes a lot of sense, Mom, yeah? And she goes, but it's going to be a religious, Catholic-only Spanish bookstore. We're like, oh, yeah, how's that going to work out? <laughs> and she made a go at it. And, you know, my mom ran a successful business for almost 30 years. Uh, you know, I could tell you a story of what she did. I, I got to tell you. You got to tell me the story. <laughs> so, so my mom comes to us and she says, I'm going to take a second mortgage on the house. I'm going to pull out $20,000. Again, we're still working class. $20,000 still $20,000. I mean, and this was know, $84,000, dollars And she goes, but I'm, I'm afraid that if things don't work out, you know. And, and I had just uh, started to work then. She goes, I expect you and your older brothers to help me back pay it if, if the business fails. Because you don't want to lose the house. Like, uh, Mom, I don't even live there. Wow, you're still part of the family, so you got to commit. And we're like, well, what's the commitment? Well, each of you, if it goes bad, needs to give me $50 a month for 10 years. What? Uh, and of course, uh, I kind of handed Hall and being, uh, I was number four of the four oldest children, right? And my big brother just gives you that eye, like, oh, like, okay, okay. I'm on more, 50 bucks. Okay, I'm working. Okay. And so she went out and she, she pulled $20,000 and, and she literally got in the airplane. This is before the internet. And, and so she had a, when she wanted to buy her inventory, she had to go to the publishers. And the publishers she had researched, however she did her research, said, I got to go to Colombia, Venezuela, and Spain. Okay. And so she went on the airplane, came back, and said, oh, I bought like $100,000 worth of books. You only had $20,000. How'd you do that? Well, I gave ten thousand to one publisher. He's going to give me fifty thousand dollars worth of inventory, and ten thousand to another publisher, and he's going to give me fifty thousand. It's going to show up in a month or so. And me being like a smart kid, like, well, did you use a lawyer? Do you have a contract? She basically just had a purchase order. I'm like, no, of course not. And then uh, she got mad at me for being a Debbie Downer. Well, come on, you know, well, I ain't been no negative. And, and so we're like, all right, and and that was the start of her business, and. And the funny thing, when I think about how it was, when, when, her, um, when her inventory came in, um, we actually got a telegram. That's how wild it was. The telegram, because she had kind of noticed, you know, we had to communicate with you, um, was at the local liquor, liquor store. Like, we're there almost every day buying milk or whatever. And, you know, if we're not there every day, they still called you. So the liquor store called me, like, hey, uh, Sardana Bell, I got a telegram, and you have to come pick it up. All right, you go there, you pick it up, and um, back then, they would charge you per the letter. Yeah. And so telegram sent over was uh, 8 or $9, but somehow 8 or $9 and 85 seems so much more than, than people realize. And so they would spell things out and abbreviate them. So they really get this little strip, and you're like, uh, shipment, delivery, Port of L.A., wharf, whatever. We were able to decipher it was at the Port of L.A. And, uh, and which why one reason why I brought out the port. And that's how she started her business. And uh, when she passed on, uh, her network was $7 million. Wow. So, so my mom, yeah, my mom was she, badass. She, leaned she into sure it. did. Oh, my God, I love it. Um, so given that she, I think, has... You know, it's never too late. You can put your mind to something, go for it. 
How has she influenced you? What is it that you feel like when you think about your mom as your hero? What is it that comes to your mind about what she's instilled in you? You know what she always wanted? She wanted her boys to be professional. You know, they they didn't have to be a doctor or a lawyer, but for the love of God, you know, work in an office, have a nine to five job, have your weekend. Don't bake, you know, don't break your backs like your uncles. You know, you you gotta, uh, you know, and, and, and raise your family. So my mom was very family orientated. And she was like, you know, business is really hard to run. I'd rather you be like a executive, a lawyer, you know, just, you know. And, and that was kind of her inspiration. Like, hey, you know, go to school. And and so um, it really inspired me to achieve more. I, I remember when I was young, I like, man, if, if I could grow up to just be a project manager, I would be happy. You know, my aspiration was to move into Pico Rivera, you know, maybe a slightly higher working class area, you know, but at least I have a house, you know, which he really inspired me. It's like, no, you, 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 you could rise in your company. You can push it. You can be that director. You can be that vice president. You can work over it. And as a young man, I, I always had this, I wanted to travel, you know, I wasn't even greedy. I'd be happy to go to San Francisco, you know, and. And again, when you, you come from poor means, that's a big trip, San Francisco or Las Vegas. And, and so I, I go, man, if I can find a job that lets me do that, that'd be my perfect spot. And sure did. Uh, I found my job in construction, program management, and that type of stuff. And I got to travel all over the country and all over the world on somebody else's dime and got paid for it. I know. That's the part that I wanted to talk to you about next is how you've gotten a chance to work on all of these projects around the world. Um, what have you learned about yourself in taking on some of these big projects? Because these are not like, you know, just the little tenant improvement, like small thing. These are like huge, multi-million dollar projects. Oh, you know, I think I was too dumb to any better. So you kind of have this fearlessness. I can do it. Come on, how hard can it be? And so I always had that, both that confidence and kind of like, well, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? And 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 so I, I just went for it. So every time there was an opportunity, I raised my hand. Yeah. You know, and of course, you don't start off, you know, especially from where I came from. You're not going to go to Europe or Asia. You get to go to the desert. All right, that's more work, something higher level, you know, and construction manager in the desert. Why not? 29 Palms, Barstow, here I come. And so... Uh, you know, I was one who just kept raising my hands. Like, oh, who wants to go to Pittsburgh? Why go to Pittsburgh? Why not? And uh, and and so I had a, a you know family life, and my wife that had gave me that flexibility, which was really simple. Was I work hard, and I just give her my paycheck, and everything will be okay. And so I was like, I could do that. I, you know, she'll get to travel. I just have to give her my paycheck. And so that's exactly what I did. I uh, I said yes. Yeah, so I, I did it. Opened up more doors. But I did the second part was I always wanted to, like, well, if I want to do more of this, I have to kick butt, you know, because no one wants someone who's not killing it. And when you're killing it, they always want you on your team. They find a role for you. They want you to work on the next big project. And I was real fortunate that some of the things I was doing, unbeknownst to me, were really helping me. I wanted to do well, you know. And even though my objective may have been, "Ah, I want to go travel to the next big project, wherever that is. And uh, so I better kick butt here so I get that opportunity there. And it kind of panned out that way. It was kind of amazing. Okay. So when you say I want to kick butt and, um, you know, 
you may be the only guy on your team that looks like you. How do you keep yourself, you know, kind of like, I belong here. This is, this is for me. Even if everyone around me is looking at me like, who is this guy and why is he here? Like, <laughs> how do you keep the imposter syndrome at bay? I think it was a combination of being lucky and working hard. You know what they say that you can generate your own luck, you know? And, and so, you know, not only would I kick butt, I would do things other people didn't want to do. And I would take on additional work. And in my mind, it's like, like if I do them with a certain amount of a palm and skill, you know, there's two of us, that project manager, he, he, you know, and you see this morning construction and maybe you see on the professionals like, Hey, I just need someone to kick butt and take names. And, and you didn't quite see that level and at the project level in terms of maybe some of that imposter syndrome. You saw that more on the executive level, director level and above. So as I was working my way up uh, through the director level, uh, the opportunities came pretty quick. And uh, again, you just end up in the weirdest places. You know, uh, I worked in Butte, Montana for a year and a half. You know, all those who can find Butte, Montana, actually it was Anaconda, which was even farther from Butte, but Butte was the big town, right? And, you know, you end up in all these godforsaken places. Uh, but the key was if you kick butt, um, both the corporation and other project team members said, yeah, we, we always have room for Albert because he'll do anything and he'll do it well. Where you started seeing what we've seen it more is once I became, say, a director level more. And, and then you'll show up to meetings or whatever, and you're like, oh, there's zero diversity here. <laughs> uh, it was a little intimidating. And, and so what I did to kind of maybe refute that was I'm going to be more prepared. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be better. And maybe I won't beat everyone, but if I can beat half of them, you know, that's a start. And that was kind of my, my attitude was I had to be better. I had to be better if I wanted that next opportunity. Yeah. And, um, and then the other thing, I, you may know, I was pretty easygoing and pretty energetic. And, and I kind of like, oh, yeah, nobody wants a sourpuss, right? So be happy. Do you, you know, find your joy. And I found a lot of joy in working. You know, yeah. Yeah. And I guess it showed. No, yeah. having a good attitude, exactly, is it. You, nobody wants to work around a sourpuss or somebody who's always thinking about working, can't, like, crack a joke or, you know, hang out with somebody. Because, I mean, you are away from home. Everyone's got long days. And so you want to work with people that you like to some degree or that you feel like, wow, this person, we can hang out after this or just I can have, you know, a good conversation with them. So that is definitely true. Um, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self looking back now, all that you've done, what what are the things that you would have liked to know that you know now? Well, yeah, so let's, let's go back in time. I'm back with 21 with my knowledge, right? I'd kill it even more so. But I would probably be a little more patient and, and kind of enjoy that, you know, the stuff I, because I, you know, you know, part of being better is like, all right, you got, you got to do more, you got to do more, and if it's anything, is like appreciate some of the other stuff, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe cut it back to sixty hours instead of 70, 75. and maybe be a little more efficient. Don't just bludgeon something, you know, and and that would be one thing. Would be a little more efficient with my time so I could enjoy the stuff. Um, and then something else, like I, I was never one of the, the better students. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but 
Um, I, I, you know, if I can do it back, I, I'll probably put out another degree or some certifications under my belt. And um, those will probably be two things. I, I, you know, you know, be patient and, and maybe add a little more education or certifications under my belt. Okay. Um, so, so much of your work impacts cities and local municipalities. Um, how much of what you bring, um, you know, with your background influences the seat you hold at the table? So, you know, I know you're working on a variety of things. We're not going to name projects unless you are okay with naming some of those projects. But um, I know you work with, you know, city council people and, you know, there's lots of, you know, heads in the room. And, you know, how do you kind of bring who you are to those situations? Well, you know, one thing about the public agencies, public agencies, especially here in, in, in California on the West Coast, are already more diverse by nature. So I was talking to the deputy public works department and, uh, and he grew up in East LA too. Hey, now we've got a bond, right? And he's about my age, you know, and so we could relate to, you know, what we did in high school and where'd we hang out in college and where was the cool taco place, right? King Taco, right? That's a universal, but you know, being there before it was a building, it was just a taco truck. Yeah, I remember it was a taco truck. You had long ass, you know, lines in those taco trucks. So, and so in the cities, um, they really, you know, not only do you work with a diverse uh, staff, but when you can show you're part of that community and you know that community really intimately, it comes out. You know, you know how many people know where El Tapiac is and how many manual burritos they have or a hauling back. It's like you got to have done it, experience it. And, and so it does help at that level to bond. But I, I, I essentially got... When you deal with a public agency, you've got the policymakers, and they're basically politicians. And then you've got the people who executed the staff, the, the head of the Department of Water and Power, public works director, facilities director. And so I, I spend, you know, more of my time on the technical side, you know, with the public works guys or his staff. And then with the policymakers, I, I still try to avoid them because every time you talk to them, especially at our level, they want to get you for money. <laughs> Mark <laughs> really Thomas is really good at that. He comes to mind, right? Because we just finished that that uh, the first phase of that large hospital job we're doing for LA County, and they decided to name it Mark Ridley Thomas Behavior Health Center. How apropos, right? And, and now he's now he's uh, I think he won a council seat in the LA City, and uh, and so yeah, usually you know you know you got to have you got to be a two mindsets here that you've got the policymakers who are really politicians, especially in cities like LA or San Francisco or San Diego, and you got the staff. And so you just be mindful that you've got two audiences. You know, one tends to be more political, 30,000 feet. And then when you work with the staff, they really want you to know the technical stuff. You know, you better know how to build it. And you better give me examples. Um, you know, sometimes we struggle with some parts of CBRE. Uh, and I won't name specific roles, but they're like, oh, we can do anything. Like, uh, if you haven't done it before, client's going to say no. Well, why would they say no, Albert? You know, they went from the best schools or did this and like, well, because there are public agencies. And if things go bad, they're going to ask or when they're at the board hearing or at the council meeting, just, why did you let a non-engineer do that job? So if you can't check the box, that's it. You know, 
And, and so they're more cautious and they got the, you know, I call it check the boxes. And you better be able to check the box both technically, not just, you know, uh, yeah, I can do anything. That's still not good enough. Be an engineer and do anything. That would be better. And so um, yeah. you know, be mindful of the people you'll talk to. And that type. Perfect. So what's next for you? What is it that you, um, I know paying it forward and, and giving back is huge. Um, and I know you're involved in quite a few organizations. So can we talk about those? <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I was, I was really uh, heavily involved in, in, in Olaf for the, for several months that it started. But for me, I also have to make my numbers, right? And all my pressure is now for 2021 because in, in the public sector, it takes three, six, nine months to sign a contract. So if I do not win my work by the first quarter of 2021, I will not make my numbers. So this is like my Christmas. This is my Halloween. This is like, and so if you notice like the last two months, where is Albert? I am working like a dog because with, <laughs> with COVID going on and, and this going on and like, and, and so, um, so I've got a lot of pressure locally. Um, I'm still involved with the San Diego Chamber of Commerce, uh, where uh, I was uh, the vice chair for the Infrastructure and Housing Committee. Uh, I was a chair for two years, vice chair for three years. Uh, they kind of rotate you out to give other people, so now I'm just a member. Um, but I had a reputation. I had a reputation, and my reputation, and it did rub a lot of people the wrong way, was I was considered too liberal, right? You know, and, and I was always, you know, it wasn't like automatic, like, hey, we're going to raise our taxes. No, we're against it, right? And you're like, well, let's maybe talk about it. And, uh, and I remember one in particular was the taxes. They wanted to renew the taxes on uh, you know, how here in California we have a gasoline tax. And it had to be renewed and it was going to be voted. Like, oh, say no to taxes. I'm like, well, they said, we are the infrastructure committee and infrastructure is road and bridges. And, it's where we get our money, and so we really want to do that. Yeah, and uh, and so they got a different voice, and quite frankly, the chamber was actually very pleased. They was actually sometimes just tell me on the side, hey, you know, you know, this is what you know, we got to play the politics part. You know, will you take the arrows? Yeah, I'll take the arrows. Let's do this. You know? um, so that's kind of the other organization involved. I mean, and, and Leeds is another organization that that trains uh, uh, up-and-coming individuals who want to maybe learn more about how to work with public agencies or professional agencies and stuff. And so they have classes, you know, they have uh, certifications, uh, they have networking opportunities, again, in San Diego. Because normally that's where the last 10, 12 years I've been in San Diego. And, and so those are some of the things I participated. Okay. And whenever um, you ask me to do something, I only either say yes. Oh or well, yeah, I can. no. I mean, I know I can count on you always. So, I mean, the stuff I ask you to do hopefully isn't taking up that much time. Um, but yeah, I um, I appreciate you coming on full circle today because I think there's just I don't know. Every time I talk to you, I'm like, oh my god. And I know you mentor people unofficially, like off. I know that they call you their mentor and you're like, Oh, I don't necessarily know that I'm a mentor, but everybody that I know who says you're their mentor is you're their mentor. So, <laughs> you know, you, you get to that point in your life and your career, like, well, you know, my retirement, you know, I, I, 
my retirement is probably closer now than it was five or ten years ago. And you're like, all this knowledge I built up and all this stuff, I can't take it with me, right? So I might as well just share it with those who want it. And, and what's surprising, we actually have a couple of brokers who've been just like, hey, how about this? What about that? And, uh, and, and that's kind of exciting. If, if anything, if there's any pivoting, um, I know the, the brokers and development teams really want me to, to maybe, uh, you know, if I were to say, in lieu of retiring, Albert, come work for the Pies team, you know. Uh, and so I was like, well, yeah, it's kind of fun. Things that I, I, I didn't do as much are not from one side of the code, like on the development or the real estate side. And, and I've been having a lot of fun. And we, we got our first large development project going forward, about $450 million in Oceanside. And, uh, and it feels good because it was essentially my idea and approach that just made that thing work. And it just fills you with confidence, like, yeah, that's my baby, you know. Uh -huh. And there's projects when you build them by hand, like, I built that. So when I look at these, uh, I, I remember I told you I popped these projects up just for you? It's like, yeah. Uh, you know, I built that. That's my work. That's my handiwork. Or part of, you know, it's a whole team. I mean, uh, I mean, there was, like, the one here, at one point, we probably had, like, six, 700 people working on that project, PRT in Long Beach. You know, fun project. Um you can see over my head, I have a really tall building. That's the tallest building in India, almost 1,800 feet. It's like, oh, come on. I, I did that. <laughs> well, part of someone who did it, right? Yeah. Uh, if you ever take the tow roads, the 241 or 261, I built that. Okay, I had a small road, one, one of 500 feet, right? But it's still, it still, it brings me a lot of joy and thrill that uh, part of my actions helped deliver that. Yeah. yeah. And there's two more. Yeah. There's one. That's the L.A. Courthouse. Kind of that glass of one there, uh -huh. and, and that was about a four hundred fifty million dollar project involved. And then the one over, let's see what's right shoulder. Uh, that's a Sky Harbor Airport. That's an automatic train system. There we go. So you uh -huh. can see the little train. It's uh, and that's connected, and that's part of the airport project. And that's a two point two billion dollar program. And again, I helped build that, right? But that was my baby. You know, that was one that 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 uh, automatic train system alone was two hundred eighty million. Wow. So everybody everybody won't be able to see this, but like these are some huge projects. Like they look massive. Um on uh Alberto's background for his um Zoom here, he's got some really awesome looking projects. They're huge. Um and so I, I can only imagine the pride of I mean I think that's one of the cool parts about real estate is because it is a tangible thing, you can see it and having had a hand in building something makes you feel even more a part of what it is that you're doing. Uh, and starting from scratch when you, it's just an idea or sketch or whatever, and then seeing it through to the end, it must feel really amazing to be able to see it go from just nothing to this amazing, amazing. Development. It, it is. And when you see the actual process, so for example, uh, you, they look like red candy canes. Those are gantry cranes that uh, remove the uh, the containers. Uh, that used to be the former Navy shipyard and Navy base. So that was a huge base. And uh, when we got there, you know, we had to demo everything. Then we had to clear everything. And you had to build the utilities. And then you had to build the wharf. And uh, 
that was great. I mean, you just, you know, and it just, and it takes years. So that, that project was maybe three and a half years. And, uh, and sometimes I'm on there the, pretty much the life of the project. Sometimes I, in there for the pre-construction or the foundation or the upfront work, uh, or I'm at the closeout or different parts of the stage, but I still take credit for micro, right? I help. That's why I, I help build it, right? Yeah, yeah. totally. Okay, I'm going to wrap up now. Um, I've got two things that I do right before I wrap up. One is a fill in the blank. So you will fill in the rest of the sentence. Inclusion in my industry looks like. Well, at CBRE, I think I told you this story, uh, it, could, it could improve. So inclusion in my industry, especially at the leadership, uh, could use some improvement. I think I shared the story with you. I was uh, We got acquired. I actually worked for Heary when we got acquired, and Lou Horn asked me, "How do you, what do you think? How do you like it here? I love it. I'm out of town. Everything's great here. And he goes, well, what, do, what else do you think? I go, well, if you ask me, I'll tell you. So do you really want to know? <laughs> and, you know, Lou has that way. And, uh, and Lou, uh, um, Lou said, yeah, I want to know. I said, well, it's probably one of the least diverse companies I've ever worked for. At the higher leadership, I mean, like I go, this is Los Angeles. Look at what we have here, you know. And uh, and I and I said that, you know, in my opinion, is that you know diversity helps bring not just different views, but I said it helps avoid having a myopic view of what's going on, you know. So if you got all, you know, they're all coming from the same school or the same line of thoughts, you tend to see everything the same way. And I go, and, and what happens when you bring different people with different experience? You, you actually open up more ideas. You know, we, we don't get myopic. And, and we're also more sensitive to things, the way we view things. Um, but that would be like in our industry, we, we certainly could use a little more diversity in the leadership positions across whether it's, it, it's skin or male or female. Um, yeah, they, they certainly could use some. Okay. Um, what does life look like coming full circle to you? Well, you know, when you think of your art, you start thinking of your family mostly, you know. You reflect in your career where it was. And, and so what it looks like to me, I'm, I'm now at that point in my life where my children, the young people, you know, that we, we really are stewards on our time on earth. You know, when, you know whatever we do is we, we're supposed to leave it better for the people behind us. And, and it reminds me of my mother, like, my mom said, if you ever borrowed a tool, you better give it back to them better than you received it. You know, if you're going to stay at a friend's house and you're sleeping there, you better clean that room and back and sleep better than you got it. You know, and, and it's kind of funny, those old school values that my mom taught me, I still carry with today, which is like part of our charters. We, we got to leave our community, our industry, whatever we do in better shape than it was before. So you can see why I felt when we talked this, you know, the consternation of that big, Eight million pounds lifted off my chest because I don't think we were doing better for for the people behind us and for the young people, for my kids, my grandkids. Uh, I feel we're in a better track now than we were 72 hours ago. Yeah, for sure. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, I am going to put in the show notes where people can connect with you. Sure. And um, I appreciate you taking the time to share and I'm excited for what is to come.
This was such a great interview with Alberto today. Um, I love talking to him. When we're at work, I love talking to him, but I think even more so um, this interview was an opportunity to just kind of dive a little bit deeper into his story. Um, The three things that I took out from his story today um, was one, owning your story. Um, He talks so much about his mother as being his biggest hero. And to me, oftentimes we sometimes don't think of our family members as so influential for us. Sometimes we're thinking sometimes of someone who, you know, is a sports figure or someone who's a, you know, huge CEO for some company. And sometimes the heroes are sitting right there in front of you that are not only inspiring you and motivating you, but also really um, showing you that up close and personal, it's something that you can do. Um, He talks so much about his mom, you know, her just deciding to go back to school, her deciding to open up a business, um, making decisions uh, that will impact the family, but making, you know, big risk with that. I loved how he, um, you know, talked about, you know, his humble beginnings and having to just be in a space where your people just are doing what they have to do to make it work. Um, and instead of running away from those stories and making me feeling embarrassed about them, I love that he owns it because this is your story and who you are is what makes you unique. And it's how you go around in the world. And that is not only just something that makes you shine, but I think is what makes you stand out. Um, so never shying away from your story, never shying away from keeping, keeping it real, as they say. Um, the second thing is finding work that you're proud to do. Um, so much, I think, of sometimes pursuit of um, being bigger in life or pursuing a career is you're just, you know, maybe looking for something. But what I love about what he says is he was proud of all of these projects that he essentially did around the world. He didn't sometimes, of course, do them by himself, but I think the idea of being a part of something greater and feeling like you have um, a hand in something, leaving the world a better place than you found it, um, those are values that I believe are still really important when it comes to finding um, purpose and meaning in your work. Um, And so never forget that you need to be proud of what you do. Like You shouldn't feel diminished or, you know, to a point where you're not excited and happy to wake up to do what you do every day. So finding pride in your work and feeling happy about what you're leaving behind, I think is huge. Um, The third thing I think was really critical, especially near the end of our conversation, was talking about um, diversity in the industry, specifically um, as a Latino man in leadership and feeling like, you know, you're loving the work you're doing, you're loving the company that you work for. However, feeling like you're the only guy there is sometimes a lot. Um, If you look at the data, uh, there's a 2013 NAOP uh, diversity report that came out. I think this is the most recent report. Um, Among commercial real estate senior executives, white men hold 77.6% of the 13,773 jobs, um, white women hold 1,948 jobs, which is about 14.1%. So there's such a big gap 
between white men and women, like a 63% gap, to the next group, which is, you know, minority men and women, which don't even make up a total of 10%, meaning if you add up, you know, Asian men and women, Latino um, men and women, African American men and women, they don't even make up, they hold less, less than um, 3% of the population. So um, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, particularly in commercial real estate, especially at the leadership level, um, it is stark. And I, I don't want his um, comments to be thought of as, you know, one man's experience, like this is the industry. Um, and so when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's very important to look at equity in that. It's very important to look at inclusion and belonging in that um, and how we all play a role. So um, let's keep striving to do better. Let's keep striving to um, change these numbers. Uh, although they're seven years old, I don't think very much has changed in the past seven years if we were to do another survey. Um, and so we need to be mindful of that in terms of what we're doing, uh, not only in our hiring, but in terms of how we promote people um, and what we're doing to continue to develop folks. So this, I'd say the three things again are one, owning your story, good, bad, indifferent, um, and celebrating those heroes and sheroes that are in your family that motivate you, um, finding work, secondly, that you're proud to do, and thirdly, understanding why um, at the leadership level, having a you know, man or woman that is ethnically diverse, racially diverse is still very difficult to find um, and why it's important for this to continue to be a topic of conversation, not just now, but in the future. Thank you and have a wonderful week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.